Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons. Good morning. It's good to be back with you all. I appreciate the hospitality you always show to us when we're here. I would ask that you continue to pray for me this morning so that I'd have clarity of thought and expression. I have a lot of ideas running around my head, and the topic I really wanted to address today is foolishness. The Bible says that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse in this world. And I can only believe that that can be measured in some respects on, and by an increase in foolishness in this world. Evil men and seducers are going to be inclined to foolishness. And I think as you see that prophetic word played out in our society, you're going to see there's a whole lot of foolishness going on in this world. And it doesn't take much looking around to recognize this. There are ideas being questioned in our society today that would have been preposterous to question just 10 years ago. And now it's just part of the common dialogue. And it is foolishness. It's foolishness. We could sit around and come up with a half dozen different topics where we'd say foolishness is being multiplied among us. And we're wasting a tremendous amount of time. One of the things about foolishness is how much it causes you to waste time on nonsense. You ever think about that? If you're trying to address things that are utterly foolish, it is a total waste of your time, right? So it's doubly foolish in that regard. Um, in the book of Psalms, we find this statement about foolishness. Um, and it's something we should remember. It kind of sets the stage for the folly of man. It's in Psalm 14. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. So that's kind of a primary vital sign of folly in your society, right? If you want to see if foolishness is alive and well, in some respect you can measure it by the degree to which you see people in society saying, there is no God. There's none whatever. I think there's a lot more people making that statement today than there were 50 years ago. It just seems evident to me that the idea of atheism, there is no Godism is what that means, is growing and is becoming increasingly prevalent in our society. You know, I bet 50 years ago a lot of old Baptist ministers would say, well, I'm, when I'm out there talking to people and trying to teach them in the faith, I'm out there trying to fight the abject Arminian. I'm out there trying to fight against the notion of works-based religion and promote the idea that salvation is by the grace of God. And they said that because, broadly speaking, in American society, people had some sort of profession of Christianity. They had the Christian faith in some regard. They may not have believed sovereign grace. They may not have understood the precepts and the principles whereby God saves sinners. But they were still talking to people who were broadly within the domain of some sort of Christianity. So it's kind of like it was more of an intramural squabble, if you will, right? We're kind of talking to other Christians and trying to hash out what the Bible actually says. But increasingly what's going on is that you're dealing with people who are totally unchurched, who have no notion of Christianity, and who may actually just be saying there is no God. <clears throat> that's the height of folly, but it is an evident expression of it that's in our society today. We say there is no God. By the way, one of the big problems that those who say there is no God uh, have to confront is uh, all of them want to build some kind of a system of morality. Right? Now that's very problematic. And you'll see this a lot if you, if you watch atheists talk about these things. They'll talk about you know, they'll say something. This is a very common thing. Well, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because He did thus and such a long time ago. He killed a bunch of people in the flood. And, well, then God's not good. And some people may, even Christian people may look at that and say, yeah, that, that kind of sounds, it kind of has some, seems to have some kind of merit to it. I mean, causing people to die in a flood, that seems like a bad thing. <clears throat> Don't lose sight of the fact that that person is invoking a moral construct whereby he's going to judge God's actions. You see that? We're so used to existing in some sort of a moral construct that we don't often think about it had to come from somewhere. 
right? So this guy's saying, God's not good if he does that. On what basis is he not good? Well, it's not good to drown people. On what basis do you say that it's not good to drown people? If there is no God, and you're nothing but time and slime, where does this moral construct come from? Who's to say it might be much better? I mean, consider this point of view. Human beings are destroying planet Earth. We're killing Mother Earth. Well, who's to say then that killing millions of people might not be a morally good thing so far as the planet is concerned? You see, if you start buying into some of these things, you've got all kinds of problems. But fundamentally what you find is that atheists end up invoking some sort of moral construct and they don't have any basis for it. It's really nothing other than their personal whim about what they think is good. And it's nothing other than that. To say that there is no God is really the height of folly. And this is taught to us in Psalm 14. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. That's what the Bible says about it. It's not a very pleasant indictment of the fool. Now here I think what is under consideration is what I would call the abject fool. This is an unregenerate foolish person. A person who has no thought of God no respect for God, no love for God, not born of His Spirit. They have nothing of the benefits of grace, right? And this is how they think about things. <clears throat> By the way, as you continue on in this passage, it says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Well, that basically is the theology, the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation that's resident in much of Christianity today. God is looking down and He's going to see those who seek, and if He finds some that seek, He's going to eternally save them. The Bible's directly addressing this notion. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. That is the complete undoing of works-based salvation. People say, God's looking at what you do. You're going to be judged based on what the knowledge you had, and that's whether or not you're going to get into heaven is how you do against that standard. Well, this text says God looked down. He didn't see anybody. That's why salvation has to be by the grace of God. It has to be utterly by all God's actions and none of your actions because none of your actions would have ever made you someone that God would say, oh, look at all this good you're doing down here. You're really trying to seek me. I think I'm going to eternally save you. There's none that seek. This is man in his fallen state. This is why salvation is by grace. People say, well, that salvation by grace is a new concept that came up from the Apostle Paul, and he, he really taught some things that were different. He wasn't around when Jesus was teaching in His earthly ministry with the others, right? He wasn't with the twelve. He came along later, and he introduced a lot of crazy ideas like this salvation by grace thing. This is the Old Testament. This is the psalmist. He's teaching the exact same principle here. Man in his fallen state, he doesn't do good and he doesn't seek God. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all His thoughts. That's what the Bible says. That is why salvation has to be by the grace of God. But this is folly. This is folly in full bloom. Folly on display for you here. And we see it in our society. The question I want to ask you today is, are you a fool? Now think a minute before you answer that question. There is the abject fool, and I'm inclined to believe that you're here today. You saw this as something that was important to worship the Lord. You're seeking the Lord. There's something in you that says, I want to seek God. God has placed His Spirit within you. I'm inclined to believe that you are not in the state of an abject fool, <clears throat> though some are. But just not being an abject fool doesn't mean that you're not a fool. As I was thinking about this topic this week, it really dawned on me that nowhere in the Bible maybe or in 
I'll put it that way. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible maybe is the idea of right division more important than when you're dealing with the idea of what a fool is. Now there's many other topics that require precision, justification, sanctification. You need to be careful about what you're speaking about in those regards. But the fool falls into that category as well. And we have to think about what the Bible says about fools. I would say to the question, are you a fool? And if you're thinking about this from your own point, am I a fool? I would say the answer is yes and no. It kind of depends on what you're talking about. Sin is folly, is it not? And we all struggle with sin to our dying day. So to the extent that you affirm those two things, you're affirming that in some respects you act like a fool. Because that's what sin is. It's folly. It is functionally acting in the exact same way that this person believes, right? There is no God, right? You may be someone who believes there is a God. You're born of His Spirit. You have the fruit of His Spirit in you. And yet, when you sin, are you not in some respect kind of saying, well, there kind of is no God. It's not going to cause immediate harm to me right away. I'm going to, at least you're saying, whatever God has said is not really what I'm going to do, Right? That's an element of folly. And I can kind of come down on you about this because with, you're talking about the abject fool. He's got some kind of a refuge in this where you can say, he don't know any better. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. You've been given of his spirit, have you not? You've been given the greatest thing that can be given. You're an heir, a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're an heir of all things. You've got it all. To, much, to whom much is given, much is required. And so there's a certain sort of indictment that falls upon us when we exhibit folly as God's people. <clears throat> Part of Christian discipleship, maybe the main portion of Christian discipleship as we're in the Lord's church and we've come to understand the precepts of grace is trying to learn how we live. And that in no small measure is trying to figure out how can I not be a fool in this world? Right? How am I going to avoid the folly that surrounds me? And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I think to do that you're going to have to be comfortable with this thought. Christianity in many respects kind of comes down to this idea. This is a principle you should keep in mind when you're talking about your discipleship. You're going to have to strive to not be a fool in this world while becoming comfortable with the idea that you'll be regarded as one. Follow me? You see why the idea of being thought of as a fool has to be rightly divided? The Word of God uses it in more than one way. And what you regard as wisdom, and what the Christian faith teaches as wisdom, is regarded by the world as foolishness. So while you might be living in wisdom and doing as you ought, you're going to have to be comfortable with the idea that the abject fool of Psalm 14.1 is going to say, you're the fool in this deal. What you believe is nonsense and it's folly. We're going to have to be comfortable with that. <clears throat> Nowhere is this perhaps more on display in our society than in the notion of money. Look at Proverbs 21.20. Set this before you today. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise. But a foolish man spendeth it up. Money's a thing that's got to be rightly divided as well. Money can be a blessing and it can be a curse. Money can be an instrument of delivering you out of a situation or it can be an instrument of delivering you into a situation. Lots of people who inherit money, win the lottery, things like that, they end up broke. <clears throat> that is often the result of folly. 
I'm not aware of any instance where there wasn't some measure of folly involved. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. The idea that you can just spend everything you got is foolishness. One of the earliest things my grandfather taught me years ago was, and I can't say that I've lived by it, but it's a principle to keep in mind. He lived through the Depression, and he realized that just because you got a good job in the 1920s don't mean you're going to have one in the 1930s. His generation learned that the hard way, and as a result, he had been taught, and he tried to teach us, he said, you know, you probably ought to live on about half of what you earn. Now, I hadn't done that. But it didn't fall completely on deaf ears because it did at least make an impression on me that I can't spend everything I've got coming in. I've got to be able to set aside something for a famine. <clears throat> now, it would be bad enough if all we did was say, we're just going to spend everything we've got that's coming in at all times. <clears throat> that's going to leave you set on zero at the end of every month, is it not? I mean, if you're, getting, if you're making a thousand bucks a month and you pay a thousand bucks a bill, you've gained no ground, right? But in our society today, we've made it so easy to borrow money that you can go well beyond spending the money that you just got on your paycheck. In fact, you might be relatively wise compared to many in our society today if all you were doing was spending what you earned. Our society is set up now to where it's easy to borrow money. When I went to buy my first house, uh, Catherine and I weren't making a whole lot of money. And I was nervous about whether or not we were even going to get the loan. I was seriously worried about it. Went to the bank, we applied, did all this stuff. They came back, they had approved us for, the, for an amount of money that was more than double what the price of the house was. Which, based on what I made at the time, I thought, that is insanity. That is insane. I don't even know how I would make the payment on that loan, given what we were earning at the time. But society makes it very easy to loan you money. And it's very easy to get wrapped up in the foolishness of saying, I'm going to borrow a whole lot of money. Now look, I find uh, among the old Baptists, you can preach on a lot of topics and everybody's just yay and amen, and they're happy about it. But when you start talking about money, people start getting pretty uncomfortable about it. I've spent a little time in debt in my life. And I've recognized that what the Bible says about this issue of money and debt is true. It's relentlessly true. Now, I'm not saying you get, Brother Dan got in there and he preached you should not have a mortgage. I'm not saying that. Not saying that at all. There's things in our society you're going to have to borrow some money to do. You're probably going to have to borrow money to buy a car, all sorts of things like that. However, you need to be mindful of what you can afford, and you need to think in terms of living within your means. Now, here's, here's one of the problems. God's people, we've all existed in a time of great affluence. You are living at the very pinnacle of human existence as it relates to personal affluence. I don't know any of your bank accounts, but I'm just saying the fact that you're here in an air-conditioned building living in a society where you ha you're somehow able to pay whatever bills you've got. You've got air conditioning and television and you're, you know, none of you are starving to death. You say, well, that, that's not all that great. It's fantastic compared to most of humanity over the course of human history. 
It's unfathomably wonderful. If you could go back and pick a random person throughout history and just say, we're going to put you in this brother's life. They'd be like, that is fantastic. I'm a king on earth. You say, well, my car's not quite what it's not quite as good as it should be. Yeah. Most people didn't have shoes. That's what we're talking about. <clears throat> we got vehicles that can drive us halfway across the country in no time flat. Even lousy ones can get you there a lot of the times. I believe me, I've done it. <laughs> Unbelievable. I was looking at a map this week of, of, that showed, you know, the United States in terms of how far you could go from New York City to someplace further west in different periods of time. And like in the early 1800s, it would take you three months to get to California. That's if you're traveling every day. Scroll ahead and you end up with, you know, more roads and these sorts of things. You end up with the railroad. Now all of a sudden you can get from, uh, you know, New York to Memphis in two days, right? We have unbelievable blessings around us in terms of our personal affluence, irrespective of where you think you might fall along the continuum of American society. You may say, I'm not, I ain't no Rockefeller, right? But in terms of the human perspective, we're far ahead of others in terms of our material blessings. And yet, we sit here and say, so I'm going to... What I'm making now is not quite enough, and I'm going to borrow more money than I've got any business borrowing. So I can have right here and right now, based on money I haven't even earned yet, the things that I want right now. Now, we need to give that serious consideration before we enter into it. This system we live in makes it so easy for you to live beyond your means that I'm saying that like a frog in a boiling pot, you don't even realize that this is the environment you're living in. <clears throat> so it's not just as bad as the fool just spending it all up. Oh, what's in the cookie jar? Well, we got $20 to last us through the rest of the month. Well, let's just go buy a pizza with it tonight and then we'll just be broke for the next two weeks. No. That would be foolish if that's only 20 bucks you had till the next paycheck. But in our society, it's even worse than that. Let's spend that 20 and let's borrow another 100 from the next six months and spend that in advance too. That's folly. And it's becoming increasingly difficult for us to have clarity on the idea of living within our means. Now, this matter, if you look over in Matthew chapter 6, one of the thoughts that came to mind here was the Lord says something about this. And you start speaking on money and people are like, well, now you're trying to tell us how to do with money. Well, the Lord speaks to this as well. And there's cautionary words on both sides of it. If you look at Matthew chapter 6. 19 through 21, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. See there, brother, Jesus just said, you got it all wrong. You shouldn't be laying up money for yourself here on earth. This is talking about where your heart is and where your treasures are. This does not mean spend everything you've got, just be happy-go-lucky, and just spend all the money you got because I'm not going to lay up treasures here on earth. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And if you take that interpretation, all you're doing is presuming on the graces of God, assuming you're going to have that good job in perpetuity or whatever your current situation is in perpetuity, when history alone, never mind even what the Bible says, just historical observations alone tell you that is not going to happen. The economy is cyclical. You're going to have good times and bad times. But the Lord teaches this as well. And what He's talking about here is not saying you shouldn't have a savings account. You shouldn't live within your means. He's not saying that. He's talking about what's important to you, right? 
Laying up treasure here on earth is like saying, this is what I'm all about. This is where my treasure is. It's all going to be about building up my personal wealth and building up my estate and those sorts of things. If that's your mindset, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He is not saying, don't be a good steward of the things you've been given. <clears throat> but he does teach this. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's not talking about, he's talking about not making that what you're all about. And many people do that. But that doesn't mean that you're not to be a good steward of the things you've been given. And you should always be thinking along the lines of, God's blessed me with this. There's no guarantee that I'm going to have the same provision in perpetuity. And I need to not spend every single dime I'm given. And I need to have something set aside for a rainy day. Now, I didn't live to that principle that my grandfather laid upon me, but I can tell you this, I lost my job in 2017. And had I not at least laid hold of some of what he taught me, it would have been a financial disaster. But because I had laid some things aside, I had some time. You know, when you're flying an airplane, um, they say that altitude is time. You know what I mean? Like if you're flying at 500 feet and your engine goes out, you don't have much time. You got to figure out where am I going to put this thing down because I don't have any options here. If the engine goes out at 30,000 feet, you've got time to try to figure out what we're going to do. Now you may have no power, but you can glide down and okay, there's a place over there and there's an airport that's just a few miles away and here's a road I might could land on. <clears throat> setting aside something for, for the future and in the event that things don't go brilliantly buys you time. And it makes you a good steward of the money that you've been given and of the things you've been given. <clears throat> so it's important that we not just spend everything that we make. Um, we try to be good stewards of the money. As we think about this attitude, though, the way money shapes us, over in Luke chapter 12, there's a common story that you know well. Chapter 12 and verse 13, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto him, Take heed and beware of covetousness. That, by the way, is the thing that fuels this idea that I'm going to spend everything I've made Plus, I'm going to start spending things I have yet to make. Why would you do this were it not for covetousness in your own heart that just said, I've got to have, I, I've got to have something that's better than what I can afford. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Do we believe that? I'm re if I read Matthew 121, we'd all be jumping up and saying hallelujah and amen, brother. But do you believe that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth? And does your personal management of your finances bear that out? And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns, I will build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? We've all got designs on our stuff. This man had lots of stuff. He was acquiring more and more stuff. 
That in and of itself is not bad, but he had made this his treasure, right? You say, well, I thought you said we're supposed to store up some things. Yeah, you are, but you're not supposed to make it your treasure, to make it your sole focus. And by the way, look at the presumption here. This is one of the biggest problems that comes into this idea of managing money as God's people is the presumption that things are going to continue being just as they are. This man thought, well, I'm going to live on. I've got all this stuff. I've saved up stuff. I'm going to continue to live just as I am, and that's how it's going to be. No, you're going to die. <laughs> and that's just all there is to it. And your plans are laid waste. Somebody else is going to be spending your stuff. So part of the lesson here that you see with this guy is he's got designs on the world, and his designs do not determine how things are actually going to go. <clears throat> Look over in Proverbs chapter 22. I'll show you this. So somewhere we've got to manage this issue of... It's kind of a balance between being a good steward and yet not making money an idol in your life, right? Not spending every penny that you have, but not getting so focused on saving up everything such that your money and your estate becomes your idol. Somewhere in there we've got to find wisdom in the matter. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7. The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. One of the problems with easy capital in our society is the lack of wisdom that God's people have in accessing it. Debt makes you a slave. It makes you a slave. What I mean by that is that we should give way more thought to the matter of going into debt than I think we do. It's become so easy to get access to capital that it's easy to not think about it. Right? Easy access to, to opportunities to make bad decisions is uh, a multiplier of sin in our society, right? <clears throat> when it becomes so easy to put yourself in a financial bind, it becomes easy to think, well, this, everybody's doing it. What's the big deal, right? But it makes you a slave. It's a, it's a covenant you're entering into. And when you think about entering into a covenant, it is a serious matter. Your salvation is a matter of covenant, by the way. That's one where Christ entered into it and said, I'll pay the debt. And he was certain that he had the ability to pay it. And there was no doubt in the matter. And so Christ, in that sense, you might say, Christ had perfect credit. That's what the Bible means when he says, he alone is worthy, right? He's the one who could make that sort of obligation. Now, admittedly, buying a house or a car or a boat or whatever that you might borrow money on is a lesser financial commitment. It's a different sort of covenant. But it's a covenant nonetheless, and it's one where you're saying, I'm committing to do this. And there's some presumption there, in most instances, that things are going to continue as they are. You say, I know, I know I can make this car payment or this house payment. But what are the presuppositions behind that? I'm going to have a job. That job is going to continue to pay what it's paying. I need to have that, well, if notice for five years, so I've got to have it for at least five years, right? You say, well, brother, I don't know how I'm going to manage this world. I mean, I, I need a car right now, and I'm going to have to go out and buy one. Well, it, it may shape how much of a car you're going to be able to buy. How much are you going to tie yourself up in these things? 
I'm telling you, these are all things to consider. And it's all well and good until things don't go exactly according to plan. And you find yourself in a bind. That's why the Bible refers to debt as slavery. Look at Psalm 37, 21. This is one that I've seen people get into from time to time. And it's kind of a cautionary word. Psalm 37, by the way, I've referred to as the hard shall psalm. It's got 35 shalls in it to my counting. So if we believe anything, we ought to believe what we find in Psalm 37. Um, Verse 21 says, The wicked borroweth and payeth not again. But the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. If you get yourself over a barrel in terms of financial obligations and things you've got to pay for, maybe then you lose your job and then you're not able to borrow or you're not able to pay back. You're now a covenant breaker in this matter. A poor servant, a slave, and wicked is what this is talking about. It should give more gravity to the matter of how we go about borrowing money, and it's very easy to do in our society. But the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. Now here's a recommendation. Don't lend people money within the kingdom of God. I would recommend you not do it. If you can't give them the money, I would advise you not to lend it to them. Many relationships have been broken over this very thing. And we're supposed to be a family here. I'll tell you how I think this should work among Christian people. If you see a brother in need, you should come alongside him and help him as best you can. Give him what he needs. If that brother is delivered out of that situation, I think it's totally within his purview to say, you gave me a thousand bucks, got me out of a bind, I'm giving you this thousand bucks now because I've got it back. I think that's the way it ought to be handled. No interest rate. And if that brother never comes back and gives you that money, should be just the same. Should never go inquire about it. You know why? Because you gave it to them. Right? I wonder, as you think through this situation, if you thought about how you're spending money and using money and putting yourself in binds from time to time where someone else might have to come along and bail you out, If you thought about that arrangement within the kingdom of God, would it make us more reluctant to go out too far on a limb financially where we could potentially put ourselves in a situation where other people kind of have to step in and help? Something to think about. A big part of what drives people wanting to spend so much today, spend everything they have, it's lifestyle stuff, right? It's literally nonsense is what it is. Social media gets people spun up on what our lives are supposed to be. And they don't even resemble anything that remotely approaches reality anymore. People are totally disconnected from reality. And the the irony of it is that they're living in an incredibly affluent society. I, I mentioned before. You are in the top 1% of 1% of human beings in terms of their personal belongings and personal wealth across human history. You're at the pinnacle. You say, well, I, I don't feel like it's that way for me. I know people who've got a lot more money. Yeah, there's people who have more money than you, but you're looking at it in a very limited perspective. You're probably looking at it from the perspective of social media, which gives you the false notion that everybody's going to live in a palatial estate and spend their lives running around on European vacations and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. 
You're literally in a place of incredible affluence across world history, and yet you are made to feel impoverished to such a degree that I'm going to go out and borrow money I haven't even earned yet to give myself the illusion of this sort of lifestyle. It's all nonsense. We listen to men too much. (laughs) Way too much. Social media is just the exaltation of men's foolish ideas in many respects. And it affects us more than we want to admit. If you've ever felt like you're, you're so much less than what you could be, I could be so much more affluent than I could be, you've just been distorted into this view of looking at something that's not even reality and while ignoring the reality that's around you about where you sit across the, the, the total spectrum of humanity. It's insanity. And we get drawn into it. Isaiah said, cease ye from man. Stop thinking so much about what men think. Okay? You think man's going to tell you, you get, this is how you need to do it, this is how you become, this is how you have the lifestyles of the rich and famous, how you're going to follow all these great things and be fabulous and drive fancy cars and have yachts and boats and houses. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. That means he's just a human being, he's going to die just like everybody else. Quit listening so much to what men tell you. For wherein is he to be accounted of? Man is a no account. We should not listen to what man tells us about these things, and we should listen to what God says about these things. Now, turn over to 1 Corinthians. We'll close up here. The world's going to tell you you're foolish if you don't go for the gusto and go try to get all the stuff right now, borrow the money, have the stuff now, live the lifestyles of the rich and famous right now. That's how you, that's how you do it. Fake it until you make it, right? That's what the world tells you to do. But the truth is, you're going to have to stop listening to man for what account is he? And that's going to come in handy because you're going to be able to push away some of these foolish ideas that would have you spending and living far above your means to no benefit. You're going to push that idea away, but you're going to push another idea away, which is if you oppose them, they're going to tell you, you're the one that's the fool. You're the fool. You've got to push that one away too. What we do as Christians is going to be regarded as foolish by the world. So you need to have a proper perspective that what they're promoting is foolish, because that's the truth. Understanding all the while that as you push back on it, those people are going to say, you're the fool. And it's Christians who are the fool. You better get comfortable with that, because it's coming. 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, verse 1 and 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Look, Jesus Christ suffered and died for our sins. He was born of a virgin. He rose from the grave. He's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high right now, and He's going to deliver all of His people unto glory. That's just what it is. Well, brother, how do you prove that? I'm not going to prove it. I'm going to state it. I'm going to declare it. If I had a highly elegant proof of it, Maybe some of you would say, well, that was pretty interesting what you said. It doesn't change the fact that it's true, and I need to declare it. And the fact that it's true is what we have to stand on, not on the eloquence of some speaker who came up with some really clever proof of this matter. This is the truth, and we declare it, and the world says, that is foolishness. Well, it's time for us to stand up and start saying, what you're selling us is foolishness, okay? And we're done with it. We need to step away with this and walk in wisdom instead of embracing all this stuff that the world says, well, that's really, that's, that's the true wisdom of this world. Why don't we push back against that and at the same time recognize that what you call is foolishness is actually the truth. And it's actually the real wisdom. <clears throat> For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. You see that? You declare the simple truths of the gospel And they're going to say, that's just foolishness. Okay, well, we're on the same level. What they're preaching is foolishness. It's trying to sell you down the river, put you in a financial bind, 
put you in a situation where you're going to be miserable because those things are just things that moth and rust destroy. You're never going to be happy with them here. It's time for us to point out that that stuff is the foolishness. And yes, you regard what we preach as foolishness, that's fine. We're on the same level now. You think I'm a fool? I'm sure you're a fool. They think it's foolishness, for it is written. Um, oh, I didn't get the rest of this verse. Um, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, that's God's people, it is the power of God. Your salvation rests in the power of God, not in the power of human reason. You might have heard, it, Gary's a great preacher. I think we have a lot of good preachers among our people. Some of them may occasionally give a pretty good sermon. But your salvation is not resting in the power of their eloquence or they came up with some good argument or some good idea. It rests in the power of God and the reality that He has done these things. And the world regards it as foolish. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The things that we're taught are the wise and clever ways to go about things are really just foolishness in the broader world. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. This thing that the world regards as foolish is something we believe in and we say, this declaration of the gospel, that is the telling of the events whereby God saved my soul. It is the wisdom of God. We rest in it. We don't regard it as foolish. Though the world does. Over in chapter 3, we'll close on this. Chapter 3 and verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Now, I, look, I don't want you to be a fool in that first sense. Don't be a fool in following the precepts of the world. Don't be the fool of Psalm 14.1 who says there is no God and I, or I, that lives in a way that seems to indicate that God is not my judge and God's not going to bring me into judgment for certain things, cause temporal punishments for my disobedience. Don't be that fool, but you need to be this sort of fool. You need to be someone, if you're living as a Christian, you're going to be someone where the world says that guy's a fool. See what I'm saying? Two different types of fool in view here. <clears throat> let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. If you think going after the almighty dollar is all there is and you want to live in some special way and that's really the way you get ahead in life, that's the foolishness we are to reject. That's the foolishness of the world. And you need to stop with that. And when you do that, you go over here and start living as a Christian, the world's going to say, that's when you became foolish. But that's when you became wise. See that? For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. That man in Luke 12 thought he had it all. He's just arranging his affairs, didn't even know he was going to die that night. He thought he had it all figured out and was coming up with a big plan for how he's going to do all this, but that's foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. I worry that we're too focused on the ideas of men. We're very influenced by them. When you hear somebody say the term social media, 
just replace that in your mind with the phrase, the ideas of men. Because that's largely what it is. It's largely folly that is influencing us in a lot of different ways. The, where you're going to find wisdom in this world is in the Word of God, and particularly within the Kingdom of God in the Lord's New Testament church. Where you're going to hear the ideas of men challenged is in the Kingdom of God. There's a debate among people who are in the personal self-defense business, like talking about protecting yourself with a handgun, for example. There's a trend, been a trend in recent years where it's like, well, they've tried to build guns that'll hold more rounds, right? You'd be better off if you find yourself in a situation where you have to defend yourself, if you've got more rounds to work with, right? And that's one philosophy that people have about that. <clears throat> but there's people in that community who say <laughs> something, people who have actually been in gunfights, so to speak. And they say, you're going to run out of time before you run out of rounds. I fear that God's people are not focused enough on using the rounds we've been given in terms of the truths of the Word of God to combat the things that are going on in this world. Our problem, if you're in the kingdom of God, you're paying attention and you're listening to the Word of God and you're trying to shape your life with it, is not, I'm not going to have enough wisdom to draw upon. It's probably going to be, we haven't made use of the wisdom we already have. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.